Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. This week's episode is in a literal sense quite close to home, as Let's Reset are lucky enough to have our offices in the brilliant Havas building in King's Cross. And whilst I'm in the office quite a lot, it's rare to get time to sit down with the global CEO, Chris Hurst, and have the opportunity to speak to him about his life, career and ambitions. So I was delighted to get the chance to chat this week. In this Reset the Podcast, we discuss how Chris came from an education in engineering to pursuing a path in advertising, culminating in him being at the helm of one of the most prestigious communications groups in the world. I was fascinated, of course, to learn about the moments along the way which have shaped Chris as a person and as a leader. And he talks specifically about the pivotal role an eight-week course at Harvard Business School had on, on him, building a sense of freedom and confidence within himself, and how this has shaped his fervent belief in the power of education and training. He also talks to me about his first role as a CEO and the previous six years of failure, and then the bold and brave resets he has made along the way. Chris shares the motivation behind his book, No Bullshit Leadership. If you haven't read it, take some time. It's brilliant. He gives us an insight into why leadership is truly a doing word made up of action and his views on decision making as a strong leader. We have a great conversation too about what resilience and hard work means to both of us and how our ideas of these concepts and the role they play in strong leadership have shifted with time and experience, and perhaps more so in the last couple of years. Finally, we discuss how he measures other leaders when it came, comes to well-being, DNI, and performance. And ultimately, why leadership is a personal journey and how it's up to everyone to find their own path. Chris, hello, how are you? Hi, I'm really good, thank you. Very good, Monday morning, so trying to keep the energy up. Yeah, okay, so on a scale of one to 10, one being terrible and 10 being massively energized, what's your what's your number today? I'm going, I'm going six so far this morning. Okay, 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 well. Slightly above, slightly above par. Slightly above par, okay, well, we'll try and see if by the end of this, yeah. uh, this yeah. get you a little bit higher maybe um well actually you know I, I was reflecting on this for a leader you are brilliant at talking about other people but i actually i don't think you talk about yourself very much i uh no that's probably true i see myself very much in the uh emotionally repressed northerner mold 
<laughs> I love that emotionally repressed northerner. Okay, well, we're going to do our best to try and a little. I, bit. I enjoy. I really the the most positive thing as far as I was saying that came out of the pandemic was that I no longer had to kiss people when I met them or hug them. It was okay. It was okay to stand apart and wave from three feet away. That was perfect. Yeah, you like that. You like that. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because. Um, and I've known you quite a long time and we'll come up with, we'll talk a little bit about some of the shared experiences that we've had, but also I feel very grateful that we have Let's Reset in your offices at Havas mm. in yes. London. And the thing that strikes me is that I see you, I, you know, and I've spent a lot of years going into agencies. So I know a lot of agencies, a lot of agency heads. I've never known uh, a chief executive and agency group spend as much time in the canteen, not actually eating themselves. <laughs> people, you are phenomenal at it. Uh, I, I, well, I don't think I am phenomenal at meeting people. Actually, um, I, I, I don't think I am. Uh, but I do quite like. I don't like being on my own. Um, I mean, sometimes, like you know, if you have to really, really. We were just talking about writing. I mean, you know, if you're going to sit and write, you can't. I kind of have to be on my own. But I like being in busy spaces and I like being kind of generally around people. Um, and and I think, by the way, also, without overthinking it, I think we're super lucky in at Havas in London in that that space you were talking about is just a really we were talking about energy i think that's a really high energy wonderful space to be in um so i think that's the reason yeah interesting oh you're and you're absolutely right it's lovely it's absolutely lovely so tell us a little bit about you know you said you know obviously northern tell us a bit about what was it like growing up for chris have you got brothers and sisters what were your, what were your family like uh yes i've got two brothers i'm the eldest of three i've got one brother who's about a year just over a year younger than me and i've got another brother who's about 13 years younger than me um they still both live uh in the northeast um so i grew up uh in sort of in the Tyne Valley which is basically for those that can imagine the shape of England right in the middle between Newcastle and Carlisle basically um in the 1980s and I, I always think you know we, we I think we had an incredibly sheltered uh life um I mean we really did mm -hmm. uh, and you know people talk about the 80s you know if you if I say the 80s to you or to, or to anybody frankly whether they grew up in the 80s or not they have this image of people in sort of red braces and sort of Porsches and champagne and all that kind of stuff and I mean not none of that uh, was happening in rural Northumberland in the 1980s. I think it was much the same as it had been in the 1960s, to be honest. Yeah. So did you did you have a great desire to be in advertising? Did you even have a desire oh. to leave where you grew up? Because your brothers have stayed. Um, uh, no, I definitely, I mean, it's interesting because I was talking to somebody about this the other day about, about choices of um, degree, choices of degrees as in the, the degree that yeah. one might do or, and then choices of careers and how we how we make that decision um and i when i talk about sheltered you know as far as as far as i was concerned and my peers and the people i was at school with by the way it wasn't just me you know you know the the the, the things you might go and do as a job were you could 
be, you know, I mean, it was like a policeman, a doctor, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a yeah, teacher. Yeah. Uh, you could go work in a factory. Be a lot of farmers out of school had a farm. Very unusual because very, very, very agricultural area. And I don't mean that to like pretend that I'm some sort of working class hero. I don't mean that at all. I just think that I lived a very sheltered existence. Um, and so, so I. I was talking to somebody about advertising the other day and I was saying, well, of course, you know, conceptually, I understood the idea that that the adverts I saw on the telly, somebody was making them. Um, but it would never, I mean, it would just it would never occur to me in a million years that that was a sort of a job that that I would go and do. So I did a, dig for, I did a degree in engineering mostly because I did maths and physics at A-level and I did maths and physics at A-level because I was quite good at maths and figured I could do least work by choosing that as my A-levels. Um, and, 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 the, and then I also, my first job was, I was sponsored through university uh, by a company called Pilkington Glass, who was still there in St. Helens in yeah. the Northwest of England. Mm -hmm. um, so I, my first job was in a factory. I went and worked for them for a year during my year out. But, but the upshot, the reason we telling you all this was after I had worked in a factory in St. Helens for a year, then I did a four year degree in engineering, which I found incredibly difficult. Um, the one thing I knew with absolute certainty was that I didn't want to work in a factory and I didn't want to do engineering. So at that point I started to look around for something else. And so how did you get into advertising? Did you start at BBH, didn't you? And, and no, in fact, I started at a company that doesn't exist anymore, like many of them, still Price Lintas, which you might well remember. Oh, yeah, cool. the yeah. year there. I did a the oh. year there when Richard Heitner was the, the, the CEO. Wow. And in fact, Mark Lund, who I think has just left uh, McCann, was the client mm -hmm. services director or something like that when I, when I just joined. Um, uh, so yeah, anyway, I started there, but, but basically what I think happened, it seems a long time ago now, but basically I, you know, I, I hunted around for, 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 for stuff and apply and applied for, to all sorts of places, you know, in the kind of graduate mill ground kind of thing, you know, I applied yeah. to, uh, you know, to banks and management consultants and all those kind of things and didn't get, didn't get interview. Um, but, but Sarchi and Sarchi, in fact, I think it was Tam Ingram, I think came and did a, um, you know, one of those middle ground yeah, yeah, yeah. things. And she came with Sarge and Sarge. And I thought, oh, that, what? They've got a bar at work. They've got a pub. You're kidding me. That sounds like my, sounds like my kind of place. So I applied to, I applied to agencies and I applied to as many as I could find. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, lots and lots and lots and lots. And I got offered, uh, I think I got offered two jobs, maybe one or two. And one of which was still Price Lintas. So it wasn't very scientific. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't even, I don't think, particularly like it certainly was at never point I was desperate to work in advertising, but I thought that seems quite interesting. Mm. And, and I definitely was desperate to have a job, that's for sure. And and did you because I went I went to drum school and actually I only got into advertising because I did a marketing postgrad, also having found drama bizarrely rather difficult. And didn't right. really understand it. And I went yeah. to Leeds, so I didn't understand Northerners at yes. all. I fully, yeah, I fully understand that. Yeah. And so, um, and then I thought, oh, my gosh, not only is this quite fun, it's quite easy. And yeah. you said so the same point. It was like lots of drink and clients and, and presenting. So I loved presenting, which felt like um, being in drama school, but in a safe space. So yeah. when you mm -hmm. first went into it, but I, but I tell you the bit that I did find because I did a drama degree and then I did postgrad in marketing, I had a massive sense of I wasn't really very clever. Right. So because I did the wrong kind of degree. Mm. Um, 
And then I went on to do my MBA only because I didn't feel very clever. Did you okay. feel that because you'd done a very kind of clever degree that you were absolutely right for advertising? Or did you feel that in you know, that sense of it's very creative environment, maybe you'd come from maybe a more kind of technical background? Or did you just think, oh, this is great to fit in? Uh I, I didn't think either of those two things, really. I mean, I, um, I, yeah, I think I did feel, feel like I fitted in, to be honest. I, I, but, but, you know, I worked in, I, like I said, my first job was in, was in the factory in, in St. Helens. I worked as, with the apprentices um, in St. Helens. Um, and I felt like I fitted in there as well. I think I'm, I think I'm quite a chameleon. You know, I think I can make myself fit in. Um, which is, you know, like everything. Everything has pros and cons, right? So there's pros and cons to that. But I think that's that's kind of who I am. Um, but no, I never felt. Um, to be honest, I never felt. I never felt that you needed to be particularly clever to work in advertising. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. well actually i mean sorry exactly. everybody who works in advertising <laughs> no 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 but isn't it funny because the irony was when i went to do my mba i asked the agency if they would sponsor me to go and they went no i will sponsor you to do an advertising course so they wouldn't at all in, in any ways they went no no that's a complete waste of time you shouldn't be doing that and <laughs> so my clients paid for the the thesis that i did and they went oh no no we think this is a great idea so, your clients rather than the agency yeah no no the agencies paid me absolutely nothing and in fact during the time because i started at bmp and then um, the bit that i was in because it was the below line bit went into rap and we had a new chief exec and my client a guy called jonathan mandel who was the marketing director of mns on the day that i graduated with a distinction because i was very pleased um went to the went to the chief exec and he said suki has done this mba a bunch of us clients have paid for it <laughs> one you should look at how brilliant this thesis is I mean it wasn't actually but anyway and you should promote her and and they gave me a bottle of champagne you see that story proves to me that you don't that being clever is not the main thing you have to be to work in advertising there are many other skills that are far more yeah. useful yeah. <laughs> um uh, but but um yes so so I uh I I think that um I, I think that I think that advertising. I mean, we're being slightly being slightly flippant. I mean, and we talk about education as well. And I and I think I think education and qualification for me, education and qualifications aren't the same thing. Um, um, education is a, is a is a is about teaching and learning yourself stuff, and qualifications is about passing exams or, or whatever test you're you're set at the end. And the, but they both have merit, and they're both valuable, by the way. But they're not the same thing. And I and I think I think. Being educated, um, whether you do it yourself or whether through school or a combination of however you, however you do that, I think that is, I'm a huge advocate. I mean, not that that's a very controversial statement, by the way. And, and I think that in any career, advertising or anything else, being educated and having a breadth and depth of just understanding of, of stuff, it doesn't almost doesn't really matter what is just invaluable there was a there was a great um there's one of my favorite quotes um is by i can't i can never remember his name but anyway he was a headmaster he was a sort of an 18 mid 19th century headmaster at eton 
And he said, uh, the, the shadow of lost knowledge protects us from many illusions. And, and, and I think it's so powerful because it just says that, you know, if you knew it, first of all, on a really basic level, if you knew it once, you can know it again. So that's just a useful thing to know. But, but, it, but it also, I think, in a world of fake news uh, and a world where it's hard to know who to trust, where facts come from, what's true and what's not true, I think it says that if you are just generally able to educate yourself and you're generally educated, you're just a lot harder to bullshit. Yes, yes, yes. And I completely agree. And I think we'll come on in a little bit to talk about your book, No Bullshit Leadership, because that's it's a great word. Um, but I just want to kind of go back to the, the reset of you sort of becoming a leader of an agency, because, mm. you know, we first met when you were at Grey. Um, yeah. You were there 11 years, eight months, which is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and actually, <laughs> you were there as, uh, you know, as ultimately the chief exec there. But when I first met you, for some time, uh-huh. you were sort of number two uh-huh. or number three in the room. Yeah. And yeah. I remember, and we've talked about this before, but I'd love you to tell the story because, you know, I, I think I've been very privileged. I've met lots of people throughout their careers um, and there are a few people that you meet and you think they are absolutely going to be leading this industry, you know, at one moment in time. And I think you know, Johnny Hornby is the kind of classic example of that in many ways. I don't think that I, when I first met you, when, oh, he's going to be an amazing leader and he's going to really change the industry. But actually, I do think you have had in many ways some of the biggest impact on industry certainly on leadership and uh, on what you've done at Havas which which I am full of admiration for but was there a moment where did you sit there going just give me a bloody chance you keep bringing these other people in and I can lead this business well um I mean yes I did think that but I don't know that I was right I mean, that's, you know, there's there's me thinking it and, and me being right and not the same things. I mean, so I was hired, as as you know, um, I was hired by Gary Lace, um, people people in the industry, some people, some people of a certain age will remember Gary Lace, let's say. Um, yeah. But 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 I was also there was four of us joined uh, on the same day. Uh, all of so I had three peers. We all joined on the same day. Um, and they, my peers have gone on to absolutely stellar careers. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually, which is a great insight because, you know, Gary has very, very mixed reviews and has done some, yeah, some really terrible, bad things. Yeah. But actually from that, it was extraordinary ability to pick some talent. Yeah. Yes. So, so, but, but we, so we were hired to, you know, fix the unfixable agency gray. So it's about 2003. Um, and the sort of short version of it is, you know, Gary, who was the CEO, I was the MD, um, Gary left um, about six months after we all joined. There was then a period of various people came in as CEOs um, and I was passed over, um, you know, at, at each point. Um, and yeah, I, I did think, why on, why on earth don't you give it to me? But but at the same time, you know, I'm not sure that I would now, looking back, give it to me. Um, and and uh, and after about six years uh, as the MD, as you say, being passed over various times, um, the the people that I joined with had all gone on to do um, 
you know, like I said, bigger and dramatically better things. And, you know, I'd been brought in to be part of the part of the solution. And after six years, the agency was still a dog of a business. And if you're, you know, if you've been there six years, you're part of the problem. But essentially, there's no two ways around that. So so I was, you know, it's a pretty low point, to put it mildly. I was pretty convinced, I'd, with some justification, by the way, that I screwed my career. Um, and, you know, and basically, I basically, I think I got lucky. Um, I mean, I. I mean, I'm, yeah, I do. I do. That's the easiest explanation, anyway. Um, I mean, I, I, two things happened. One, I, I persuaded them again to keep the story short, but I persuaded um, um, Gray, stroke WPP, I suppose, to pay for me to do the AMP program at Harvard, which was an eight-week, essentially, um, executive, sort of their version of an executive MBA. Let's say that, which was in Boston, um, and I think that that did change my life and we can talk about why that might be if you like later and then I came back and and my uh, my new boss basically um he got promoted and he gave me the opportunity to become CEO of um of Grey in London and so that that happened that happened in about a nine month period those two events I think he took a pr- I mean that was David Patton. I mean, I, I I think he took a bit of a punt on me, to be honest. I mean, I think I was pretty bullshy. I was pretty pissed off. I was pretty determined to leave. I'd had enough. Um, uh, I probably, the, from a career point of view, the right thing to do might have been to leave, um, but I didn't. Um, and you know, and at that point, from that point, um, you know, we had, a, we found ourselves with a team and it certainly wasn't just me, but we had a team of sort of four or five of us um, in London at that point from Grey, where the agency, you know, was transformed, I suppose, within about a three year period from then. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, I, I, I often think about it because I don't know how to kind of characterise what happened. <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because so often when we think about a reset, and particularly a career reset, mm. um, the natural thing is that you've moved to job, you've moved to a different job and you've reset and you've changed, or mm. the environment's changed or whatever. But actually, the the conversations that I've had with leaders where they've stayed where they are, and there's a reset moment. And, you know, as you said, maybe it's luck, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a combination of things, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it then is. you are able to make that change. In many ways, it feels like it, one, it, it, it changes people's lives a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. It means you may perhaps more thoughtful as a leader, um, but it definitely is different. And I don't know if you can remember, you know, you said you were pretty pissed off. How did you go from that state to staying and then making what really was a very dramatic change to the the agency over that next three years well i i, I think that um i think there's i think there's sort of th- there's three there's three factors that that aren't that are, that are quite different they aren't three versions of the same type of thing one was that i spent this eight weeks at harvard and like i said that that did that did changed my life and i and i and i'll well, let's just stay on that for a moment chris because yeah. i remember meeting you when you came back from that um yeah. tell us how it changed your life it, it changed my life because um so the the way the way they do it is is part of why so you you go you spend eight weeks there in boston and they have a very very regimented you have a very very regimented life you work very hard 
it's a six days a week, often late nights. Um, but, um, but you're separated from, or, you know, you're basically just in this little bubble. Um, and and the 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 thing that that I that, that struck me was you you could walk into that lecture room. They even tell you where to sit in the lecture room. That you could walk into that lecture room. And nobody knows you. You don't know anybody else. You just have a sort of a name tag. Mine said WPP. Um, and all that, you could be any, essentially you could be anybody you wanted to be. I mean, that that was the, 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 the revelation to me because all of that stuff, that baggage that holds us back, the fact that I'd been this kind of failed MD of this crappy agency for six years and, you know, I was pissed off and I was miserable and I thought I'd ruin my career and all that kind of stuff. I could just, I could have gone in there and, you know, told them I was a CEO of WPP probably and, and people would have believed. I mean, it didn't matter. No, nobody, and also nobody cared. You know, nobody cared. I mean, nobody was that interested. And so I think it was an opportunity for to recognize that so much of what holds us back is just stories we tell ourselves. You know, I, I imagine that it now is like little Lilliputians, you know, from Gulliver's Travels, the little Lilliputians like hammering in all their little pegs and tying you down. And I sort of got free of them. And, and of course that's, that's not a, that, that, you know, eventually when you come back, you, you come back into reality and, you know, the day to day starts to re-intrude. But, but I feel like I never fully went back to that person that I was before. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, by the way, no particular order. So that happened. I think I had I, I then had this opportunity that was presented to me to be the CEO Um so that happened in very short order, having having been passed over for six or seven years. Suddenly that opportunity arises. So that's point two. And I think three is is the the six years of essentially failure, which I think is broadly what was the case at, at Gray for those first six years. Um, in a sense, I never thought about this. I never thought about it this way at the time, but the one thing that I was really, really sure about when I became the CEO was I didn't really feel like I knew exactly what I was doing. Um, but I was very clear that I wasn't going to do what had been done during those previous six years. So if we were going to make mistakes, we were going to make a whole load of new mistakes all of our own. We weren't going to repeat those kind of that same stuff that had happened for six years so it was almost like something to push against if that makes sense it was a sort of a and you know we were deliberately and quite consciously iconoclastic in terms of how we approached the job and I think that those three pieces even though they're different they do kind of sit together in terms of how I ended up approaching it yeah yeah so give me some examples of some things that you did specifically differently from the previous six years well the i felt that a big challenge that the agency had had um that maybe well i would say maybe that almost certainly i suppose i had been part of because i was part of the leadership team is is i, I describe it as leadership team but we weren't a team um, um it, it, you know the agency was fractured at the top and if the agency is fractured at the top, and that's a polite way of putting it, mm -hmm. uh, if the agency is fractured at the top, it's fractured all the way through. So 
the first thing that I decided was that the most important thing that we needed to do ahead of anything else was we needed to behave like a team, as a leadership team. Um, and we needed to invest um, in making that a success. And, and that's, by the way, it's glaringly obvious. But, but you know, I talk, to, I talk to leadership teams of agencies a lot um, these days. You know, I have a lot of agencies that report to me, but I, I find myself talking to all sorts of other people about the subject as well. You know, friends, colleagues, clients, whatever, people like you. Um, and I think that, you know, I see agency leadership teams as an, as an indivisible whole. You know, there might be two people, there might be three people, there might be four people, but they're an indivisible unit in my mind. And it's about that unit. It's not about the, yeah. uh, it's not about the individuals within it. And if, and if that, if that team sees itself in that way, um, I think they've got a chance of succeeding because, because in our industry, we, we talk an awful lot about, in, not just our industry, I think in business, we talk a lot about, about, um, talent as individuals you know we talk about is that person good enough is that person a superstar is that person isn't good enough but but in my experience most agency leadership teams are good enough um but they're just not a team they're good they're good enough as individuals they're not a team and 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 we, we were very very focused on trying to create that tightness of team and we felt like if we did that we've got a pretty good chance um but you know we did we did all sorts of things. I mean, you know, we, 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 we had, I remember us having a conversation about all the things that we hate. We, we deliberately had a conversation about all the things that we hated at all the agencies we'd ever worked at. Okay. And now if anybody listening have, have that conversation, cause you know, it's quite a long list yeah. um, and, 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 and things that we hated that, you know, that happened at agencies we ever worked at. And said, so, well, let's, let's just not do those things. Let's not do that. Let, you know, let let's not have a creative director that sits in a corner office with white with white sofas who insists on signing everything off. Let's 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 not have that. And it was like it was like what I mean. Yeah. It was absolutely radical for the agency at that at that time, and nobody felt comfortable with it. I mean, the creative didn't like it, but the account teams didn't like it and the planners didn't like it because, yeah. well, who, well, does that, what that means, I, well, who's deciding? Well, you're running the project, you're deciding. You you as a team, you as a team are deciding. And so, you know, in some ways, there were some good things and some bad things about that. Uh, but the overriding impact of it was that what we wanted to do is we wanted to, we wanted to, smash everything apart that represented what the agency had been the agency was a failing business had been a failing business for long for a long time and therefore in some senses what we felt was we haven't got a thing to lose because it's crappy already yeah so it's already crappy so let's just smash it all up and try and try and rebuild it yeah, no, I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I was at the Crystal Palace Manchester United football match yesterday, mm. and the new manager for Manchester United was just uh, sitting. Yeah. Us. yeah, and you know, and actually, they lost to to mm. Crystal Palace, which a few years ago would have been literally unheard of. Yeah, extraordinary. But actually, for the manager. You know, we're saying, well, you know, if they were amazing, it would be fine because you just carry on being amazing mm. and hope it doesn't mm. go backwards. But if they're just not performing, you know, you just need to give them time to make that difference. Um, I see, but I, I think that, I mean, I think, I was thinking, you know, I think, I wouldn't say best case for him, 
But I think it's I think it's not a bad time for him to come in to be manager of that club because it's not dissimilar. I mean, you know, he he has got an, a watertight case now, I think, for saying no, there are no sacred cows anymore at this football club. I don't want anybody to tell me we do it this way because we've always done it because yeah. it's all broken. And, you know, and, and I think... You know, he, he's going to have to be a revolutionary in, in, in a sense. He's going to have to say the ways we've always done it aren't working anymore. Um, and therefore, I think if you're going to be that, you can't, until you sort of start to, to smash stuff up, you don't really know what what really matters and what doesn't, if that makes sense. What, what really is the thing that's going to either drive you forward or... There's other things. I mean, we certainly did some stuff that we were like, oh, oh, hang on a minute. Whoa, there was a really good reason we always did that. Quickly, quickly put it back together. Yeah. And that's yeah. point too. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then I'm interested in psychologically how you kind of worked on yourself and then your team. Because if you've lived in an environment for sort of six years of failure, as you put it, um, mm. it's quite hard, you know, to think about actually you know not waking up in the morning and going what if I fail and maybe you know and if your brain is quite used to being um a failure isn't it you know and I, I you know I, I always I love um yeah. Mo Gorda who talked about you know that sort of brain plasticity and if mm. you've had the same thoughts going over and over again it is difficult to stop your brain going into constantly Oh, I, you know, I don't expect this to be a great outcome. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, but but you see, that's why I think that's why the Harvard thing, the timing was so good. So so I so I'd had this, I'd I'd had this this um moment of um of reset. Um yeah. And 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 also we learned that like I said at the start, you know, I think I'm quite an academic person. And by that, what I mean is I I I enjoy the process of learning. It's just I just like learning things um, and I like knowing how things work and, and understanding stuff. And so so I so I also really enjoyed just the sort of the wallowing in learning um, that, that happened. And, and we talked a lot about change, companies that have changed, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, great, you know, really kind of iconic, famous leaders who've who've done change management programs. Um, and I remember coming back to 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 Grace. So you, we talk about people like Meg Whitman at, at eBay, Carlos Ghosn, who everybody's heard of now. But you know, a, a, a remarkable story, Carlos Ghosn, etc. Jack Welsh. And I remember coming back to um, to Gray and thinking, we employed at that point, you know, two hundred people. I'm like, well, we can't we can't fix a business of two hundred people. I mean. These guys, these guys do it like at their lunchtime. I mean, this is this is ridiculous that we can't that we can't affect change in, uh, on this scale. It's preposterous. Of course, we can change a company of two hundred people. Yeah. So, so it, it was it, it, the Harvard thing. Definitely, the timing really, really helped. I think in that regard. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, how it all kind of comes together in that moment of reset. And, you know, now, as well as being global CEO for Havas, you have written um, you know, a book called No Bullshit Leadership, Why the World Needs More Everyday Leaders 
and why that leader is you. And it's done phenomenally well. Um, and I just wanted to, well, I'm going to ask you a few things about the book and, and kind of unwrap it a little bit, just from my lens, particularly of, of how do we look at culture and people. Uh, but tell us, why did you write it in the first place? Um, I was asked to do a presentation um, uh, to a group of kind of young uh, next-gen leaders um, uh, and uh, not who, who didn't work for us. They were they were just I don't know. They were just a kind of a collection. I can't remember who who asked me to do it now, but I spoke. So I had to talk to about twenty people, um, youngish people about leadership. That was a brief. Oh, can you do twenty minutes on leadership, please, Chris? Yeah, sure. And like a lot of people, you know, two days before I thought, oh shit, I've got to do a presentation on leadership in two days' time. What am I going to say? And at the same time, I found out that actually. This slot in their calendar, there was three 20-minute slots and I was the middle slot. And there were three of us who'd been asked to talk about leadership in this, wow. in this, in this slot. Um, and the other two were sort of these kind of uh, business luminaries. And then I was like, I was this filling in the sandwich uh, for good or bad. Um, and so th therefore it became competitive as well at the same time. So I, so I had to think, well, how am I going to say something that isn't just the same old uh, bullshit, frankly? So anyway, I did this presentation, it was fine. And I came back and I uh, lay in bed and I woke up and thought, you know, I, I wonder if I could write a, I wonder if I could write a book about that. I mean, it, it kind of was that, but I didn't know. I mean, so what I did was I thought, well, I don't know whether this is a, a short essay whether this is a long paper whether this is a book I don't know whether I have enough that I can turn this into a book so I just sat down and started writing it um, um, and uh, you know I, I actually I actually enjoy writing um, it's it's hard work but I enjoy mm -hmm. it and I wanted I was very I was determined that I would write it myself because if you have a book that's called No Bullshit Leadership, the, the tone of the book, you can't ghostwrite that type. You can't no, ghostwrite no, that book. No. That, has to be, that has to be the right tone. And I wanted to write a book that was a well-written book. I, I wanted to write a good book, uh, not just a book full of things I thought. Mm. Um, so anyway, that, that's what I did. And, and I found it actually hard work, but also quite a kind of, uh, you know, sort of quite a, uh, in some ways... Uh, so almost it was almost a sort of a relaxing process and that's relaxing isn't the right word but kind of rest you know rest it, yeah. you work at well, it, it's different brain. isn't it it's you work different, different parts of your, your brain yes from your day job and i think you know yeah. we talk a lot at let's yeah. reset about the seven needs of well-being and performance and one of them is having a creative outlet and yes. actually you know for you it's sort of like your creative outlet isn't it well i think it was that and i think particularly particularly not not being a creative person, having, having spent my career working in an industry where, you know, I was the sort of facilitator, essentially, you know, yeah. I'm, I, you know, I'm not the talent, I'm the facilitator of the talent, whether that be the strategists or the, uh, the creatives. It was nice to, to, to actually make a thing as well. There was a bit of that about it. Yeah. 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 No, I can see that. And, you know, I guess with some of your background, um, in understanding and, and sort of measurement, you'd have this uh, measure of leadership, which is leadership impact equals objectives plus strategy plus team plus values plus motivation multiplied by action. Mm. Talk us through that. Well, yeah. Um, 
Really, the point of that is so I've, I've, I, I have now simplified that to leadership is clarity times action because it's quite, quite a mouthful. Um, mm. So but the, the, the point of it really was to set was it started off being almost a, a like quite like hard, which 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 was the idea is, is that as a leader, you want to create impact, you want to get stuff done. Um, and I think what a lot of people in leadership positions do is they spend an awful lot of time rightly focusing on the things you've just talked about objectives strategy missions visions yeah, value yeah whatever it is um but um until you multiply it by action it counts for zero so i mean the, the, the point of the equation really was to, to to get people in leadership positions to bias towards action to say look you can have as great a strategy as you like um as clever as big an insight all that kind of stuff as great an idea as you like but until you multiply it by action Oh, in fact, if your action equals zero, your impact is going to be zero um, and you're going to fail. You'll fail as a leader. You, you, it, it, leadership is about implementation and doing. And, and, and it's also, I think, the other you can look at it the other way, which is even if your strategy is imperfect, and by the way, your strategy is going to be imperfect, uh, your insights are going to be imperfect, um, even if they are, if you bias towards action, so your action is greater than zero, you'll still create impact. So the, 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 the point of the equation was to get, in the, in the first instance at least, was to get, was to make quite forcibly the point that leaderships are doing word. Yeah, and, and I and I like that. And actually, I quite like equations. It sort of helps. I like equations. Yeah, it just really helps me kind of clarify mm-hmm. things. Um, but, and it does bring, you know, if I look over my career and, and I look at, like you, lots of other leaders, Action is often hard, partly because we're very good at thinking we're being busy, but busy is not the same as action. I think particularly in our industry, and I, you know, I'm again seeing it kind of now because we're coming out of lockdown and everyone's terribly busy again. And mm. it worries me that we mistake one for the other. And I just wonder how we stop ourselves from doing that. Well, being busy doing nothing. Is, is, the, is the blunt way I think of saying yeah, yeah. or at least be, being busy not necessarily doing the, the best possible things let's yeah. be slightly more that's half full about it um well first of all I fundamentally agree with you I think that um I think that leadership of all sorts not just if you're the CEO whether you're running a team whether you're running a Sunday league football team whether you're running a ward in a hospital le- leadership is about doing it's an it's a doing word, uh, and to be leading leadership is about a journey. It's about it's about taking a group of people from a defined place in the present to a different and clearly defined place in the future. The only way you do that is if you go along a journey between the two, and to do that you have to act. Full mm. stop, in my opinion. Well, I think I think a lot of failure happens in leadership because people don't. So if I don't don't take action, and I think people don't take action because it is difficult. I mean, there's no, there's no two. Leadership's difficult, but not complicated. Um, and it's difficult because I think, I think there's a whole lot of. Look, I'm, I'm not a, I, I'm not a. I deliberately try not to give my pop psychology reasons for things. I'm, I'm happy to state something without necessarily. But, but I, but I think I, I give you two, two examples. First of all, I think a lot of taking action is about taking decisions and. I think a lot of uh, people find decision making quite difficult um, because because when you take action, when you take decisions, you can publicly be seen to fail. I mean, that that essentially is it. I mean, 
you know, yeah, you can write some PowerPoint slides and you can write presentations and you can do all those kind of things. You know, it, it's it's hard to really fail writing presentations. You know, you to 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 actually get stuff done, you um, as the leader have to step up, stick your neck out and go and say, this is what we're going to do. We're now going to stop creative director sign offs. You know, we're going to stop sitting in departments. We're going to, you know, I don't know, rebrand the business, whatever it is. Um, you've got to go and actually physically do some stuff. And when you're doing some stuff, people, you know, you, you meet resistance, you meet resistance from all sorts of people um, in all sorts of situations, you meet resistance from yourself. And, you know, it's hard to do. And that's why leadership is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you then talk quite a lot about energy and resilience. And, you know, it's something that you and I've talked about quite a lot. Mm. And you use a quote from um, Will Smith. <laughs> it's the one yes. about... Just... I'd just like to say that the book came out before this year's Oscars. I'd just absolutely. Like say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I'm very interested in the concept of this. And I'd like to get your perspective on it and then tell you why... I find it really interesting, particularly. Um, it says, the only thing I see that is distinctly different about me is that I'm not afraid to die on a treadmill. You might have more talent than me. You might have be smarter than me. You might be sexier than me. You might be all of those things you've got on me in nine categories. But if we get on the treadmill together, there are two things. You're getting off first or I'm going to die. It's really <laughs> that simple. Why yeah. do you use that quote? You no, know, it's interesting. I don't know whether I would now. Um, I don't know whether I would now. Um, uh, first of all, I think it's, I mean, I wanted the book to be useful, informative and, and entertaining. I, I wanted the book to be provocative and entertaining for people to remember stuff and to smile at stuff of it, stuff within it and laugh or disagree with some of it. Um, yeah, I, I often think about that because when I, when I talk about leadership now, I, I don't, I don't use, uh, I don't use that quote. Um, I th I, so I think the sentiment behind it, then we can talk about the quote. I think the reason I talked about that as a topic. So I actually found that in a book called Grit. I don't know. I, I haven't got a quote. Anyway, it's a book called Grit that I found that in, which is a book about, uh, about resilience. Um, and I think that resilience, you know, you need to be resilient, I think, to be an effective leader. Um, you need to be resilient. You need to be resilient. It's, it's useful to be resilient full stop to be able to get through life, right? Um, and, but I think I wrote a book about leadership, so let's keep it to that. Um, and I think you do. You know, I think it's, I think, as I said, I think leadership is difficult, but not complicated, but it is difficult. And, it, and uh, you know, you're, you're having to make decisions with imperfect information. I mean, I think uh, for me, a decision is a choice that you take with imperfect information if you have perfect information it's not a decision that, that you don't have to decide you just it's obvious yeah. so it is you have to make decisions with imperfect in, in information with without clarity of what the outcome of that is going to be um you know you are you know you have to i think there is something about you have to kind of be the energy source of last resort for the team you know you have to sometimes be can't be that all the time other people need to take their part in that as well. But sometimes you need to be the person that says, no, you know, here we go. We're going to go and do this. And you've got to, you've got to draw from your own internal battery and share that energy with others. Um, and I think all of that, you know, and, you know, failure. I mean, you know, I talked about those six years at Gray. I mean, that was failure. That was career failure. So 
certainly during that period. And people people like, you know, I do a podcast. I always ask some people, well, so tell us about some of your failures. You know, people love talking about failures. It's great. But, you know, when it's happening to you in the moment, people like talking about it like retrospectively. Uh, and they typically like and nearly always you hear people talking about it retrospectively when they clearly on to failure in that moment as well. Um, and so that and and yet when you are uh, when it is happening to you, it's really or it certainly can be really horrible um, and really exposing. I mean, I, I, I interviewed Anthony Scaramucci, um, uh, who's, by the way, fascinating, fascinating mm. Man, who but he was obviously famously press secretary for Trump for for um ten days, and he said that when he got fired, he said it felt like he'd been kicked onto Pennsylvania Avenue, skinned alive, and rolled in margarita salt. Is how he said it felt. <laughs> you know, it was you know it was just grim. And mm. um, well, he jokes about it now. You know, Joey's got a great anecdote about it now. You yeah, know. yeah. 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 Um, but it's tough. And so I think that so I think that's the point about resilience. I think I think resilience, you know, I think resilience is a good thing to to be able to have as a leader. I think that I, I use that quote because I think it's I, I, I personally have a, um, you know, I think that it's it's in a book called Resilience, but you can also read it as a quote about hard work. You know, he's basically saying, I'm just going to work harder than you. You know, that he, he's saying I'm 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 where I am because of hard work is how I is how I read that. You know, you know, he's saying I didn't I, know I didn't all the things that everybody else, all the advantages everybody else gets. Yeah, fine. I don't have any of those. I'm just going to work harder. Um Yeah, no, it's so funny. It's, it's a quote that we've used in one of our workshops um, and and it causes so much debate and particularly now and I think over the last couple of years because mm. there is no doubt the message about hard work is a really important one and absolutely about resilience mm. but now we get a lot of people and I think you know if we'd use that even seven or eight years ago even probably five years ago people have gone yeah absolutely brilliant yeah, you know yeah quite right we're the last one standing we're the one there we're the yeah. one who's the hardest and actually people now go that's not the point is it we shouldn't be there working until we basically die or we we achieve shouldn't we be looking at smarter ways of working shouldn't that be part of the way that we think about our lives and and for me this causes such a big kind of dilemma between how do we empower leaders how do we empower people to be as brilliant as they can be but actually not have that attitude necessarily of it is just about working longer hours. It's just about staying on the treadmill, no matter what happens to you. Because I'm not sure that that's actually a great lesson either. Well, I I, I don't disagree with any of that. And and yeah, I said that's that's why I, I mean I wrote in it came out in 2019, so I wrote it in 2018. So yeah, yeah so no, 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 no. I, no, I, I'm just I am just fascinated. No, 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 no I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing with you. I mean, the end, yeah. it absolutely. That that's why I say now I probably wouldn't put I probably wouldn't put it put it in for the reasons you've described. But I it's I do think it's a fascinating debate, and and I think that that I think it also partly depends how what lens you look at that quote through so if you look at that through him doing that for himself him him wanting something so much 
mm. that that's that nobody else is telling him to do it. Nobody else is pressuring him to. There's nothing else there. He's just saying, this is what I want and this is how I am going to go about getting it. I think that's a perfectly valid and reasonable way for him to be. I mean, that's his, that's how he wants, that's, that's him. I, th- I think the, 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 the tension becomes when you start to interpret that or see that, or that is interpreted as being an ethos imposed in a workplace, a sense sort of by somebody else, if that makes, I mean, by, either directly or by implication, if that makes sense. And I think those are, those are, those I think are similar but different in my mind. Um, because I think that people, um, there's a, you know, I think that everything, everybody, everybody who uh, achieves anything, um, becomes brilliant at anything, or whatever that might be, a, a, a sports person or whatever, musician, it, it, hard work is the single biggest determinant. They may need lots of other things as well, but, but, but if you don't add in the hard work, they, 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 they don't become brilliant at it. And, and I, th- I, I was thinking about this the other day about somebody asked me a question about where the leaders are born or um, yeah. you know, whether, it's, whether, it's, whether it's sort of a nature or nurture, however you want to put it. And, and I think that um, everybody, um, I think there's three things that determine whether you're going to be you or I or any of us are going to be really good at anything you know, a language, a musical instrument, whatever. And I think those three things are um, quality of your teaching. Are you you given, whether it be by a person or a book or whatever, have you got good tuition? One, so teaching. Two, your willingness to learn. So are you you willing and open to actually take that tuition? Are Are you prepared to be told the things you don't want to hear? Are you prepared to get get back from failures etc and then i think the third is hard work the third is are you just going to put the hours in do that it's not the same as dying on a treadmill by the way um but but i think those and i think that you know those those three if you do if you have those three things some people will have a bit of extra natural talent but i think that's on the margins that's the difference over over a year's period. That that natural that natural ability difference is tiny compared to the other three. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree, and I think it's. But I think it's interesting, isn't it? I was talking to the headmaster at Dulwich College recently, and he was talking about, you know, to your point about kind of revolution. There's a real revolution needed in education at the moment um, for all sorts of reasons, and you know there. are I think in many ways at the forefront of some of this experimentation, but some of the fundamentals are exactly the same, but it's that balance, isn't it? Between what do we keep doing? How do we keep learning as leaders? How do we do the same? And then how do we be actually quite different, maybe more revolutionary um, and change what we learn and the way we teach and the things that we are teaching in the future? Oh, well, in education, I mean, I do think we need a revolution in education. I, I mean, I'm not an educationist, so I'm just going to give that, if that's a word, is that a word? Um, uh, so that's cav- that caveat. Um, 
yeah, I think we've got to work out what is, well, we already talked earlier about the difference between education and qualifications. I mean, they, they, they aren't the same thing first off. Um, but yeah, I think what is education for is a, is a, is a great conversation. Yeah. Um, it's certainly really important and useful. Uh, but what is it used for? How do you want to use it? How does the state want to use it? How do we want to? How do we want to um, use it ourselves? I think it's yeah. really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <coughs> <coughs> oh yes, oh, we'll cut go. that bit up. Um, yep. <laughs> yes. Look, we're, we're we're coming towards the end of it, so it's just two more things I wanted to talk to you okay, no about. Is you know, let's reset is about particularly enabling people to live the work life that they want to um, and in, inspire themselves and others and particularly around looking at the link between well-being and performance and I think you know one of the things that I again love about Havas and what you've done at Havas is you have put the sort of well-being of your people absolutely at the heart of the agency um, and I think for me my reflection about a lot of agencies is that they think that a nice free breakfast and a drinks um, and maybe a bit of yoga means that everyone's very happy and contented and it's all wonderful. And, and look, you, you know, you, you offer some of that stuff, but yeah. me, which we is do, great. Yeah. We need free drinks and yoga. Yeah. 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 It's great. Um, but actually it, it's much bigger than that, isn't it? And I think it is yeah. around ways of working, kind of working, um, the way that you empower your people, the way you teach people. And I'm just interested in, you know, what is your perspective on that? What are you trying to do at Havas and what is working really well that perhaps you could share with some of the audience? Well, I think that the biggest, you know, we, we kind of, we're kind of going through um, the middle of, we're in the middle of a work revolution, let's say that, not just at Havas, obviously, but sort of across much of the world. And obviously this is the sort of debate about hybrid working, um, etc. So I, I think the biggest change to people's um, working experience in the past two years is that. Um, and it's and I think that now, I mean, I think that comes like anything that can that comes with positives and negatives, by the way. Um, but I think that I think that allows employers and I hope that allows us at Havas to find to allow people to find a uh, a balance between work and the rest of their lives that works for them. I, I think that if there's one thing about hybrid working, and I, like I said, I think we can have a debate about that as well, about its pros and cons, but I think done well, it should allow us to allow people to, to fit the two together in a more organic way. And, and I do, I do genuinely think that is happening at Havas and I'm, and I'm sure by the way that that is happening in many other employers as well. I think, the, I think from a Havas specific point of view, you know, I think we, we, we genuinely want Havas to be a place where people can come and they enjoy being there and they, can do you know they can do great work and that it's great for their careers I, I mean you know I think a, a really great question for leaders to ask themselves is a hard question by the way is how good am I for the careers of the people that work for me you know that's the question I ask myself I want to be good for the careers of the people that work for me if I'm doing that if the answer to that is that if the answer to that is yes I am then it means that I'm doing or any leader is doing 
a load of things really well because that's a that's a demanding question i think and i'd like at the i'd like the leaders that work for me to be asking themselves that question also um and and i think the most important thing um as an employer or as a leader is to is to have the question you asked me um on actively on your to-do list to actively be you know it's not just a thing that once every 12 months you do a survey and you come back and see how you've done it's it's an active it's it's like we talk about action you know it's something that we have to be talking about challenging ourselves on um and looking at where we're succeeding and looking at where we're failing because of course we do um, um and learning from both look you said you just said in that uh, there's a load of things you need to be doing um what kind you've just talked about action what what kind of things are you looking for people to be doing that you know you you kind of judge your leaders by well in in that in against that particular question we we have two actual hard metrics we we measure them on um i mean there's a load of there's a load of more if you like um softer measures because a lot of a lot of the kind of things you're asking don't easily lend themselves to hard metrics but there are two um and the first is we do we do do a regular um staff survey quite a detailed staff survey um and and one of the ironically one of the questions that we one of the questions that we always look at is is whether people think we're going to take action as a result of the survey. So we ask them in the survey, do you think that anything will happen as a result of it? Uh, and, and that is, and we do, we do that survey globally. And interestingly, that is not, not always everywhere, but that is often a, a, a metric that comes lower than many of the others. So people enjoy doing the survey. They say, yeah, we like working here, but do you think anything's going to happen as a result of this? And so people score down a little bit. So one of the things we really want is we want, you know, we want that action score to be up. And how do you get the action scores to be up? Well, you have to actively engage. You have to use that survey as a cultural tool to engage each individual business because we, we, you know, I, I, we in the UK alone, um, you know, we have nearly 20 different agencies in the UK. We don't have, we don't and can't have a one size fits all approach to those. So we we have the program and we expect people to go and engage with their businesses and talk about the challenges their business specifically um, has. So that is a key measure that we that we talk about regularly. The second is DNI. I mean, all all, all of our all I'm sure any CEO really in worth their salt needs to be needs to have that on their not just on their to-do list but right in the middle of their um right in the middle of the boardroom table these days we've certainly had it on the middle of our um, table for many years now when I joined um when I joined Havas which was quite a long time ago now nearly seven years ago um I wrote a DNI charter <clears throat> that when I look back on it now was pretty naive to be honest with you i mean the 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 motivation i think was good but maybe the execution needed a bit of uh, needed a bit of help but we've refined that over the years but crucially against that we've set ourselves where we can we've set ourselves hard metrics within that as well and each of our ceos has have those metrics relayed down into their businesses as well so so we act we it's all both of these come back to action you know we don't just want to be about words we want to say these are the things that matter to us how are we going to measure how are we going to measure whether we are getting better at those things or not and then we push those down into our businesses so for not just in the uk but but for our global ceos the global ceos report to me in our core markets um both of those are part of their key 
um, part of their KPIs and part of our business planning process at the start of each year. And what do your people say about you? What's the best thing that you that you I mean, like that you hear them say about you? And what's the most challenging thing that you hear? I have no idea what they say about me. I don't. I mean, I don't. I'm honestly not just being evasive. I have no idea what they say about me. I mean, um, I, I don't know, Suki. I don't know what they say about me. Mm, how interesting. How interesting. When you were doing the sort of turnaround at Grey, did you ask then? No, I, I don't. Um, I, no, because um, it doesn't occur to me to ask people what they think about me. Um I, I, my job in both both now and then um, was, um, you know, was to create an environment that allowed that allowed our teams to outperform our competitors, and 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 I think a team, an effective team, um, has a conjunction between the ambitions of the team and the ambitions of the individual within the team. Uh, and if we can achieve that, then the team will be will be good. And if we create the right culture, then our teams will outperform. That that. I think it's about that. I mean, I'm not trying to be evasive, but no. don't ask the don't. I don't really think about. I mean, I presume. By the way, look, I I think any leader has to to be effective. You have to, I think, on balance, be respected by the people that work for you. I think that is pretty well a prerequisite. I think if you're not, you're going to struggle to get stuff done. Um, but, I'm, but even then, you see, I'm very wary about people. When they talk about leadership, people like to list adjectives. You know, a leader has to be like this or that or the other. And I think that is bullshit. I think there are lots and lots and lots and lots of different ways to be an effective leader. And you have to find your own way uh, to do that. I do think there are some tools. There are some universal tools that leaders need to apply. That's, hence, I mean, you don't have to agree with me, but essentially that is why I wrote the book, because I think they are universal tools. But I think there's lots of ways of achieving it. Mm, that's very interesting. It's never a question I particularly asked in on this podcast to any of the leaders, but I'm going to ask it because I think that's quite unusual. I think uh, I think most people would have a view about what their teams think about them. And I think, again, that sort of steps, sets you slightly apart from other leaders, um, which is a good thing. It is a good thing. Well, I did start by saying I was an emotionally repressed northerner. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think it goes out. Okay, well, I'm going to fight. I'm going to finish on one last question then, which is, and it is one of my favourite questions in the podcast because it it was brought up by one of my guests a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, um, which is, if you were to ask yourself and give me the answer, who am I? Um, so who is Chris Hurst? What, what would the answer be? Oh, God, you determined to make me talk about myself, Stuki. Um, I think that I am, I think I'm quite reliable. I think I'm quite predictable. I think, and by that, I mean, you, you, I am broadly the same person day by day. Um, so you know what you're going to get. Um, I think I'm quite a confident person I, I think I'm both confident and unconfident actually at the same time actually but but I think in terms of the you know in terms of the business context that we're talking about I, I know my own mind I know you know I know what I think and I'm able to express that quite clearly for people so that allows me to be quite clear and I don't like being told how things 
how things, I don't like doing things how they've always been done because they've always been done that way. I like to be able to, I try and look at every situation with a questioning mind. I do have a questioning mind. I don't like just being told something and, and, and asked to accept it. Um, and I think that means that from a leadership point of view, it helps me get stuff done because it means I ask lots of questions and then I go and do something when I'm, when my mind is made up. Yeah. I think that's a very good summary. And I think, again, it's a, it's quite a surprising summary from many leaders. Um, but I, done, I do think it sums you up very well. And I think that what I observe about you and from what I hear from people about you is you are amazingly consistent. I think you are uh, really very visionary and you are somebody, you know, you talk about questioning of trying things in different ways. And certainly to the leaders that I talk around in your business, what they love about you and working at Havas is just the ability to try things, to explore things, that it's not a normal communications group. You've got different agencies that you bought, you've brought different types of people together. Um, and I think under your leadership, because you are actually just not very self-centered, you're not very full of your own ego, but I think you're very confident. Um, you have leaders that are very similar. And therefore, it's very much about the team and what the building can do and the agencies can do and what you can do collectively together. Well, I, I joke with people and I don't know whether I don't know whether it's a joke or not, but I'm, I say it's a joke. And, and I joke with people that, that I think I'm quite lazy. And and I, and and by that, what I mean is because I'm not a I'm not a control freak at all. Um, and I say to some of the people that work for me, you need to be a bit lazy <laughs> to be a bit lazier like me. And by that, I mean you need to, you need to get get rid of as much stuff as you can. You need to you need to get give stuff to other people the stuff that if they can do it, give it to them to do. And even if you think they may not be able to, give them a bit of stretch because people they'll surprise themselves and they'll surprise you. And I think that that. For, certainly for I mean look I don't think there's one I don't think there's a one size fits all in leadership I think different people gel and click with different people but but um the way I like to work and the way I like my businesses to work and the way I like the way I like the people who work for me to work is that I like to give people a lot of space um and I like to see and I see my role as I, I think we talk about talent um my, my final thought, we, we talk a lot about talent and I and we form judgments on people, whether people are good or bad or right or wrong. And I think there's two questions you have to ask yourself before you ask yourself that question. The first is, is that person functioning in an environment that gives them a chance of succeeding? Are they functioning in an effective environment that gives them a maximum chance to succeed? And the second question is, are they really clear uh, what it is that success means for them and I think and I see my job really as about trying my best to answer those two questions in the affirmative for the people yeah. that work for yeah I, I agree and I think I would add and do they feel valued because I yeah. think the third thing that I see in your environment is people feel genuinely valued and that's the bit that makes the additional difference yeah I think that's fair I can add that I can add that onto my little diagram yeah 
Okay, good. Stuart, yeah. Chris, I've waited a long time to talk to you. We've, um, you know, getting our diaries together has been challenging, but, yeah. uh, and I love your book, No Bullshit Leadership. Thank and you. as you know, I have lots of post-it notes in it. So anyone who's looking at this, I have loads of post-it notes because yeah. I use it a lot. But also I love seeing you in the Havas building with your people. Um, and I enjoy just learning from you. So well, thank you. Nice having you there. Thank you. All right, see you soon. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson. With me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network. <laughs>